0: Well, welcome, and if you haven't already, turn to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, is our text this morning. It's a series of Old Testament passages, Uh, and as God is looking uh, down upon us, as, uh, as we just heard out of Psalms 14, He is looking and He is giving His assessment of people's hearts, He's looking at everybody. And so that is our goal today is to look at these passages that are from the Old Testament, that are now being brought into the New Testament, and to learn as we look at our final um, our final uh, uh, sermon on the principles of God's judgment. And with great joy, we get to go into how, what is the result, what did God do for us? to deal with our sickness of sin. And so that's a wonderful, wonderful uh, thing that we get to do. Well, hey, this morning we're going to look at the last of these principles that are we've been learning that it's defined by God, not by man. Man really likes to redefine everything that comes from God because we realize that we can't stand under the scrutiny of God, and so because of that, it really it makes it hard. Uh, we experience shame, guilt, frustration, the lack of peace, lack of joy. We're looking for happiness in our life, and so we like to try to redefine everything because we are in the search of happiness or so-called contentment. And so man tries to redefine it, and so man has over the years of co-opted judgment and sin there's even been men today that are trying to redefine what sin is and they're trying to make sin just based on an identity rather than basically going against God's standard that we can never measure up to God's standard and so there it's amazing how even good and well-intentioned people have moved away from what God says in his word and are now redefining some very basic things. And why is that? And that is because we don't like to be under God's standard. The, but the beautiful thing is when we realize what God's standard is, then we know the truth and how to deal with the, our lack of meeting God's standard. And when we know the how to deal with it and how God has... Prescribed the right medicine to deal with the lack of our sick, you know, our sickness and sin and not meeting his standard, we can really enjoy a great relationship with God. One of the biggest problems in, in people's lives, the reason they really struggle in their relationship with God, the reason they really don't enjoy God or the things of God is because we're trying to deal with the things in our life not based on God's standard, but our redefined standard. Most of us have an image of ourselves, and it's somewhat different than reality. We go to the mirror, and we see our image, and we make it all up, and we say, yep, that that passes. But God is the perfect x-ray machine. He sees past our outside image that we see, and He sees our heart, and that's the reality. In the text that we're going to read this morning, we're seeing we're given a divine diagnosis. We're going to read the doctor's notes. It says, "Here is your diagnosis." We don't. Uh, I know that you have looked at yourself in the mirror, but that's not the reality. And and some of you maybe have seen a few X-rays of yourself. And you say, well, I have bones, I'm okay, I'm all together there. And God says, nope, you're not. Uh, I, I, I have CAT scans and MRIs, and I have other things that can see down to the molecule of your body, and you are not right. And that's what we, where we're at. That's why, he's, that's why Paul has been spending these last two chapters for us to realize We can't redefine judgment or our guilt, and we can't redefine sin. We are what we are, and there's an important reason for that. So we see this divine diagnosis of a sinful heart of every man, both Jew and Gentile, every man, whether you're religious or not. From this passage, we want to speak about this sinful condition our sinful conduct and the cause of that conduct and the conclusion. What does that mean in all of that? We're going to look at the three main points is that conduct, the condition, or not the conduct, but the condition of every man, the true condition that God sees. Then we're going to see the reality of our conduct does condemn us, and that's the last one, is the condemnation. So condition our conduct, which leads to our condemnation, it's really easy. All sees, and it happened to fit because it was right there in the passage. These verse tells about that true man that we see in the mirror. The mirror, Romans three and Romans chapter two is like really is being able to read an MRI and really seeing the nitty gritty, the complete workup of our who we are. From a heart level. Now he's telling that every man, no matter who he is, is a sinner in God's sight. That's the reality that we see here. And that's a hard pill to swallow, right? That's a hard, if we're reading that, it's like reading and nobody wants to, it's like today, nobody wants to hear that we have a terminal illness. Nobody wants to hear that we are condemned or that we have cancer, right? That when we hear that, our heart sinks and there is this reality. And But what we want to hear is the doctors say, but I have good news. This isn't a, you know, there's, there is a reality and there's a treatment that can cure your illness. And in, we need to understand that we have this cancer, sin, in our life and that we're under the judgment of that sin and it's going to condemn us to death. If we realize that, we'll run to the right, uh, the right pill that we need to swallow. We're going to, the right uh, condition that God gives us to meet to deal with this sickness. And that's what we want to do, is understanding this truth is the first step in coming to God for salvation. If we don't understand this complete step of how our nature really is, how sick we really are, how sinful we really are, we won't understand the reality of our salvation. We won't, we won't realize the importance of our relationship with God. We won't realize how to enjoy that relationship. We won't realize our true nature and how it affects our relationship with each other. Realizing this helps us deal with every aspect of our life. And so that's why we've taken the time to go through this verse by verse, is not to just skim over it, but to realize this. Well, as you pray with me as we read verses 9 through 20, you might realize as we read this, we've heard this before, because it was just read to us out of Psalm 14. It's also in Psalm 53, also Isaiah all over Isaiah 55, 53, 59, 64. Um, we're gonna—it's all over. Um, it's not like Israel uh, didn't know this, but they ignored it. And um, so let's read uh, God's word and ask God to impress it upon our heart that we might really, truly um, be excited about what God has done for us on the cross and uh, what Christ really did for us when he died and rose again, making a payment and satisfying all of God's wrath. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we read this word, that we would not try to redefine it, that we would really see our true nature, our true self, that we wouldn't try to minimize it. But Lord, that in minimizing our true nature, we actually minimize you. But Lord, may we magnify how great you really are. And in doing that, we would realize your work that you did for us in our life to take care of this sin nature that we would magnify that work, not minimize it. So Lord, help us to see that, that we can't redefine your terms. But Lord, May we come to grips with this, and may we run to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. Speak your truth to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 9, he, finished, he continues where we left off with these questions of, and answers. He says, what then? Are we better? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have already charged or we've already stated that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. All are under sin. We're all under the indictment of sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless there is none who does good. There is not even one. Wow. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. Their po- the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet "...are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known, because there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, is speaks to those who are in the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and all the world may become accountable to God." Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's quite the powerful passage. Don't suppose that you heard the word all and none. That the, you know, There's none that are excluded, not one. We're all under sin. And that's the indictment that Paul brings, that he's talking about this, this principles of judgment, that we're all under this, and that's, this is the reality. And he goes in, and he, he's bringing up this first point, and that is there's biblical proof of man's condition. He goes back to the Old Testament, and he quotes six main passages that deal with this concept, that fact that we're all under sin, that we have this nature that is, that is sinful, this condition. By the way, when we say condition, it's, it's all of man's, it's natural, it's the nature of man. It's not something we learned. It's not something that's based on our circumstances. It's just in our DNA. That's what God is telling us, that it's our condition, right? It's our lot in life, and and it's not good. This is God's diagnosis, and he's written, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 was written to say, look at, when I look down at you, at your image, this is what I see. We need to take note of that. Jesus also takes note of this, and he says sin and uncleanness are not external, but they're internal. They are the problem of the heart. It's man's nature. Mark chapter 7, verse 21, he says, For from within, out of the man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all these evils come from inside and make the man unclean. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and, you know, and following tells us the same thing, that by nature we are dead in the trespasses of sin and we're under Satan's rule. All people are sinners. There's no exception. That's why, by the way, the Bible is relevant to everybody because we all have the same nature we all have the same condition and we all need the same savior paul gives ample proof from scripture to prove the truth of our depravity citing all of these verses and what we see in these verses starting in verse 10 as it is written he gives us the first aspect of our nature and that is there man is not righteous the idea of righteousness is the idea of being right according to a standard. And it's not just any standard. It's being right according to God's standard. According to God's word, there is no one who meets this righteous standard. Until he himself came in the likeness of man, Christ Jesus our Lord, the Messiah, the one that would go to the cross because he met God's standard fully, and so he went to the cross to pay for our sin. Paul, like I said, is quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And he's telling us that there this righteous standard no one can meet. According to this, there is none who measure up and cannot measure up to God's standard. That's why Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 You remember way back when, about a year and a half, two years ago, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Right? That's the standard. There is none that is righteous on earth that does complete goodness and never sins. God demands perfect conformity to his standard. That's why he says there is none righteous. In reading one of the commentaries from Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, was interesting, he is actually a doctor, and it was asked to be the queen's, the Queen of England's personal doctor because that's how great of a physician he was. And he put all of that aside and went back to seminary because he felt called to be a pastor. And he became a doctor of God's word, of sharing God's word. And this is the diagnosis that he writes about. Uh, And so here's a physician talking about the ultimate physician's account of our condition in life. He said this, the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most Philip, I can't say that word (laughs) this (laughs) word, You know, the one that gives away all their money and and does all those good things and fancies himself a really good person. That long word that starts with a P. There you go, thank you. Uh, The greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like about him. There has never been a man who can stand up to the test of God's law. Drop your plumb line and he will never be true. This is why we should read the Bible From the beginning to the end. What he's saying is, as you can build your walls, no matter how good you think it is, God's gonna drop that plumb line, gravity will take effect, and you will and it'll show that you are not straight. Right? You you're just like a bad back that's filled with scoliosis. It's got curves everywhere. (laughs) You cannot measure straight in God's in God's eyes. Which leads to the second one is, and by the way, these are in true fashion, these are stair-stepping. If you're not right or straight compared to God's standard, then you can't understand. No one understands. The word understand, we would know, is it means to know something or perceive something. It's, it's truly to perceive it in order to replicate it. It's to have a true and right mental perception of something. That's why a lot of times you hear, well, you just don't understand. Because you may be speaking the same language, you may be even saying similar words, but what's in the heart isn't coming across the same. Right? That's why you can speak and communicate well, but still have bad communication. Because it's all about understanding or perception. What Paul is saying is that no person has in and of himself a proper mental prescription about God and his method of righteousness. No one has a right perception and true understanding of God. That's why we need his word. Lost people, by the way, do not have... They can't even come close to perceiving God in his perception. Because of the effect of sin, no one understands God, man or creation. Without knowing God first, we cannot understand even the simplest of things about God. In fact, most people see truth as a lie and lie as a truth and deny the, the whole idea of God, or there's a right standard. Paul says that the natural man does not understand the things... That, that are spiritual because those things that are about God are foolishness to the natural man 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 it's they can't even fathom or understand why the things of God are important why the following the laws of God are important why even when why we need a savior right they just think that hey we're good but we are not right we can't Understand, and therefore, because we don't understand God, we can't seek God. Verse 11, he says, There is none who understand, and then he goes on to say, There is none who seeks for God. The idea of one who seeks for God is one searching for a relationship with God. When it says no one can seek God, there's a lot of people that seek religion, but they're not seeking God. They're seeking God on their own terms. But that's not seeking God. They're making God. The idea of one who seeks for God that no one seeks for God is because they're not searching for a relationship with God that is proper in light of who God is and God's standard. If, you're not, if we're not right, if we're not straight, according to God's standard, then we don't understand God, and we don't understand God, then we're not seeking after God. That's the basic principle. Sinful man cannot seek God. He does not, in and of himself, have the ability to have a proper relationship with God to be able to seek Him. It's It's natural for man to want God on his own terms. It's natural for a person to seek God on his own terms, but it's not a right relationship with God. Great example, Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. We see that right, Adam and Eve, they had a great in, in chapter 2, they had this amazing relationship with God, and they walked with God, they understood God they were right with god then sin happened and what do they do they hid right they hid themselves god is walking through the god is walking through garden of eden right and and he sits he sits there and he says where are you <laughs> right of course god knows exactly and probably God's voice was not the way I just portrayed it. So <laughs> that's blasphemous. He's probably, it was, his voice could be heard everywhere, right? So he's there, he's like, hey, Adam and Eve, where are you guys? And they're like, I'm not here. <laughs> I don't want you to see me, right? Uh, Adam and Eve weren't seeking God. They didn't want to be found. That's why most people seek gods on their own term. Notice gods, plural. They make up their own god. They do because if they they don't want to be under God's standard, because they want to they want to make they want to feel right according to their own way. That's why Solomon said everyone uh, you know seems right in their own eyes, but in the end it leads to destruction. Right, And that leads to the next one, verse 12. He says, all have turned aside. Man does not go in the right direction. If, he, if man isn't right and he doesn't understand God, he's not going to seek God. If he's not seeking God, he can't go in the right direction. Do you remember the early days when people stopped reading maps? And they started trusting, you know, those GPS things. My wife still calls it MapQuest. I don't understand why. <laughs> you know, I'm like, it's, I'm like, we don't, we're not she goes, just go look it up on MapQuest. I said, we don't have MapQuest. We have Apple Maps or Google Maps, you know. <laughs> but she still goes back. You remember those days? If you typed up on your computer and then you printed out, you know, MapQuest, it always took you in the wrong direction. Right? uh, More people started getting lost when they followed this, right? There's no way you can't. When you rely and make up your own terms, you just are never going to go in the right direction. Right? Because you don't trust the maps anymore. If we're not seeking after God, we're not going to understand. We're not going to know the right way to go. We can't. You get, again, I love this. There's no exception. It says all have turned aside. All turned away from God's path. The way of truth to the broad way or to the lie. They're following the lie. Just go this way. It's easier. Just go the easy way. It's a scheme out of the pit of hell. Right? The verb, by the way, turn aside, carries with it the idea of turning from what is right, in God's view, to what is evil. That's how this verb was used uh, often. It's, It's going from the right way to a way that creates destruction. The idea that the Greeks often used this, if you looked up in Greek literature, they'd use this word, and, and it always was used in a way that a person deliberately turned aside. The idea here is, is that these people would say, I don't want to be under this standard. I cannot live up to this standard. Therefore, I don't, I, I don't want to know what my problems are. So I'm going to go this way, and not towards the cross. I'm going to go this way, and the way I want to go, so that way it's easier on my soul. I don't want to, I hate God's way because it shows me all my problems. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53, 6. He says, we all, because he's, you know, he's southern, we all. I always like it when I get to this passage. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us have turned to his own way. Same word that is used in Hebrew. We've we've turned away. It's a horrible condition. By the way, that's the idea of sheep. If sheep don't have a shepherd, they turn to their own way, and most of them die. It doesn't take long for sheep to die. Kind of do their own thing. By the way, if we go our own own way, if we don't go in the right direction, guess what that makes us? Useless. You see that? That's the outcome there. It says, together they have become... Worthless or useless. Every person has become worthless and useless to God. The Hebrew equivalent to this Greek word for useless or worthless, is it describes milk that has become so sour and spoiled that it can't be used for anything. Isn't that amazing? Because you know when milk spoils, you get... Cottage cheese, right? If you keep letting it spoil, you get cheese. You know, it's like, why eat, And you know, I said, why are you guys eating cottage cheese? It hasn't been fully developed yet, right? It's like in-between stage. I don't get it. Just eat the cheese when it becomes cheese. Right? <laughs> or drink the milk. But that in-between stage, it's just, bleh. But <laughs> I never got it. You know, cottage cheese with a peach. It just doesn't make sense or a pear. I just, I don't get it. But here's the thing, I digress. Man becomes useless. What's amazing, you know, that I found this out is, is that milk, when it's spoiled, when it's spoiled to a point, it becomes toxic. You know, and and it, it it's great for killing weeds and everything else in the soil. Nothing will grow there. It kill. it just it's toxic. Look at the digression here of man. Not, not, not right, can't understand God, so they don't seek God. So they go in their own direction, and they become useless. And many of you are thinking in your mind, you know, you're thinking about government, I know. But, but this is the idea. The verb have become useless, by the way, is passive. You know what that means? It means it's our nature. It's not something... It doesn't matter what you've done. You're still useless. If you start with something that's so toxic, it doesn't become better. It just stays toxic. Nothing grows. That's the point here when it says there is... There is we've all turned aside. Together we have become worthless. Right? One who tries to be right with God on his own is one whom God views as useless. His efforts mean nothing to God. Man is not good. right? That's the, the ultimate end. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And that's the thing. as we parade ourselves around town, around work, around school or around home, Say, look at all the good things I've done. And the reality is it's not here that matters. It's here. It's, our, it's the God, we can't meet God's standard. That's why there's none good. We like to parade ourselves as self-righteous, but Isaiah saw that, and and God gave him a word to tell Israel and said in, in Isaiah 64:4 that all are. Good, all our good deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. Paul improved upon it, saying our righteousness is like dung. In Philippians chapter 3, he lists all the good things. He has met the highest standard in all of the culture in Philippians chapter 3. And in the end, he says it's all worthless. It's all worthless to the point that it's decay rotting decay filth you can't take rotting decay filth and turn it into something good total depravity we've heard that that's a theological term total depravity does not mean that no one doesn't no one can do something that is that seems good or do something good or you know open the door for somebody that's good that's not what total depravity is speaking about in our human condition. It means that there is no good in our human condition that can satisfy God. We're wholly depraved, which leads to our conduct, the proof in sinful man's conduct. So he just did an x-ray internally of our internal nature that our, our condition is bad. We've got, we've, got the, we've got the x-ray, we've got the examination back, and it's not good, folks. That's what Paul's saying. The end of the matter is this. It is not good. And, the, and this proof is by also our conduct. Having described our condition, Paul continues his scriptural proofs as he examines the conduct of sinful man. He's saying, look at the depravity of man. Warren Wiersbe says, of this text, he says, an x-ray study of the lost sinner from head to foot. He's saying now, let's look at the conduct, the x-ray of man. And he says this, in verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. How many people have you been, have said, hey, by the way, your throat or your mouth is an open grave. How many people come up to you and tell you that? You know, just my wife, when she rolls over in bed and smells my breath, (laughs) she's like, shut it. (laughs) Or Jaden, because he likes to come in and snuggle in the morning. He's like, Dad! And I'm like, I know, I haven't brushed my teeth yet. (laughs) But this is the reality. Man's mouth are rotten. You know, the saddest thing in life is when a freezer full of good meat You know, when the power goes out or the freezer stops working. Have you ever gone out after a week thinking your freezer still works? And you've had a week of, it's had a chance to sit warm for just a week. Have you ever opened that door? I bet you shut the door faster than you opened the door. And I bet you walked out of the room faster than you went into the room. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very good natural repellent for us, but not for flies. The flies love it, right? Man's mouth are rotten. That's what he's describing. The throat of a sinner is like a grave that opens up and the stench comes out. It's, it's horrible. Can you imagine? You, you bury people... And then go back and just open it up just to take in. That's what he's describing our mouth as. Because of our, our condition, the natural condition of every man, he says it turns into, it comes out in our mouth. It's rotten. In fact, Jesus told us this, and he says in Matthew 12, right? Verse 34 Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Not only is a mouth rotten, but a man's speech is filled with lies. It's pretty self-explanatory in verse 13. He says, their, f- their throat is an open tomb, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. It doesn't, you notice there, it's, it's a it's a progressive, it just keeps on deceiving. When, you you notice people, when they try to convince you that you're good, how many lies that they've told in the process of doing all of that. And that's, the reality is, is that our speech is filled with lies. Simply means that sinners lie continuously and use flattery to get their way, to, to get people to believe that there's something that they're really not. Sinners are not only deceived, and they believe the lie of, uh, that Satan shares through the, that we learn about, in God's word, but they're also deceiving others, especially through their words. James chapter 3 talks about how rotten our tongue is and how we use it for the wrong purposes to destroy. James chapter 3, James chapter 4 talks about because of our inward desires, because of our heart condition, we destroy. Part of that is with our mouth, which is the next overflow. Man kills and destroys with their speech. In the end, it says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Right? They kill and destroy. This is a real problem. Right? He uses the word, he talks about asps. Do you know what's amazing is he just described in, in quoting the psalmist, he describes the actual uh, condition of an asp. You know, an ass, in order to strike, they can actually spit with their, with their poison at their prey. But in order to do this, they throw their head back, and in doing that, their fangs pop out. And when their fangs pop out, they lunge you know, to strike at their prey, and then they sink in. And the reason they throw their head back is they're locking and loading those hypodermic needles that they have in their mouth. Because their poison sack is just up under their lips, up on top of their jaw. And when they go back, it tightens up and it squishes that sack and it puts it into those teeth. So when they strike, they can either, if they squeeze hard enough, it'll spit the poison at the prey. But then they can then sink their teeth into their prey. And that's what the psalmist is describing here. You notice it says... (laughs) <laughs> They're you know, talking about the mouth and the speech, and it says the poison of ass is under their lips. Wow. That's not good, is it? The Bible gives us an exact scientific description of how an asp kills and he ascribes that to our speech, our words. That's that's a scary. asks are a pretty scary thing. I mean, we lived in Oklahoma. We went to a Bible camp. You know, when you go to camp, you know, we have stories about Camp Gilead. But no one ever comes back and says, "Oh yeah, our counselors carry twenty twos on their hip, so they can shoot the the." you know, that they can shoot the rattlesnakes and the copperheads and the water moccasins that are at camp. I went to a camp like that. That was crazy. I was like, I want to be a counselor. (laughs) I wouldn't watch the kids. I'd be out there wanting to shoot all the snakes. (laughs) But man kills and destroys with their speech, which leads to verse 15, right? Which, you know, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, that's what's in those sacks, and verse 15, and it tells us it moves on from their speech. Now, what comes out of their heart come, comes out of their mouth, and what's in their heart not only comes out of their mouth, but then it controls their conduct. It says, Man's conduct is full of murder. You know what's something very interesting about this is that the history of the world is a history of killing and murder. You ever notice that? You do history. There's more in history about killing and murder than there is about just about anything else. The devil is behind all that. I mean, right from the get-go, you know, they they destroyed, they killed their relationship with God. When they sinned, they go outside of the garden, they build their life, and the first two brothers get in a fight, and one kills the other. Right? Didn't take long. Got so bad that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. That he well, he, he destroyed the whole world. With the flood, and then he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's like it's bad. Jesus even said in John 8 44, he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. He goes on to say in John 10:10, 10, 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come to give you life. That you may have it to the full. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on Romans, uh, he he writes very well and he explains that man's depravity is seen in his rush to violence. Will Durant wrote in his lessons from history in the last uh, 3,500 years of recorded history, only 268 years. Uh, have been noted that there was no great wars. Not saying that there was no murders. just says there was no great wars. Think about that. That's not talking about murder and violence. That's just talking about war. Out of 3,500 years, there's only been noted 268 without war. Man loves violence. Why do you think that all the movies that are popular to men are filled with violence, right? It feeds your nature. Here's the other thing: man's conduct is full is full of ruin and misery. I love verse sixteen. It says destruction and misery are in their paths. Wherever a man go, ruin follows. It's like it's like a, the trajectory of a great tsunami, hurricane, cyclone, earthquakes. You know, it's like you see man going, and there's destruction in his wake. Man, God's not giving us a very good... <laughs> yeah. When we're reading uh, the, you know, God's assessment of our, our nature and our conduct, he's like, yeah, this is why you're having this problem and this problem and this problem. You got a great cancer in you. Man's conduct is full of ruin and misery. Isaiah fifty nine seven says the same thing. It says, "Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation, destruction are in their highways." Wow. It's not a good view of our our conduct here's the reality all of this yeah our mouth is rotten filled with lies, because it's, our mouth is rotten we kill and destroy just like an asp and our conduct is filled with murder and because of that it's filled with ruin and misery which leads to the, verse 17 and 18 which is man's conduct does not produce peace it can't produce peace Peace, by the way, is a gift from God. It's it's a byproduct of his spirit being within you. We can't produce peace. Man tries and fails miserably because man is there. Think about it. What does our text say in verse 17? Man's conduct, you know, or in verse 16, man's conduct is full of ruin and misery. Wherever man goes, there's misery, right? And so when man tries to produce peace, there's misery. All of this, the rotten, the lies, the killing, the destroying, the murder, the ruin, the misery, it's all there because we are there, right? That's why if you find a a perfect church, people say, and if you attend, you just ruined it. (laughs) That's why when people say, well, I don't go to church because it's filled with hypocrisy, and I'm like, well, then what do you call the rest of the world? Man ruins everything. But we're not here because of man. We're here because of God. Right? And this is a real problem. In Isaiah 59.8, The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked. Not one of one who treads on them knows peace. Isaiah 57.21 there is no peace says God for the wick there's no peace for the wicked. Jesus Christ is the prince of peace. A man who is outside of Jesus is a man without peace. Even as a believer, if you're trying to produce good works on your own, you're going around trying to produce prove that you're a good person and that you're going around doing all these things and everything is about you. And building up yourself, you're not going to produce peace because it only comes through Christ, the work of Christ. Look at it in verse 17 it says, The path of peace they have not known. Verse 18, there is no, it's basically the there or it is because of, there is no fear of God before their eyes. right there is no fear Luke 18:2 Jesus spoke about a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men not a good that's a that's not good Scripture repeatedly says through the proverbs by the way about fear of God it says the fear of the Lord fear the Lord and you'll turn away from evil Proverbs 3:7 Proverbs 8 says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So you turn away from evil, and then the more you fear God, the more you hate evil. And it says, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps his way from evil. Look, if, if you turn away from evil, because if you automatically fear the Lord, you get a twofer. If you fear the Lord, it means you automatically turn away from... So if you, over here is evil things. It's the natural man. But if you... Fear God is a man. You, you turn when you fear God, you turn actually right away from evil and you start going towards God. And the more that you fear the Lord, you see who God really is. You're like, wow, I hate evil even more. And the more that that happens, guess what? The more you're walking away from evil. And the more you're walking away from evil, guess what? You're not going to have around you evil. Remember sharing the gospel to a kid that you know he was. Somebody said he had Tourette's, and some somebody said he had you know he's demon possessed. He would not go to chapel. He would not go anywhere near where there was singing. Um, not going to say here or there. I'm not going to judge that, but he definitely was against God, and he tried to use bad language to destroy everybody around him. He was very good at it. And I kept preaching the gospel to him. And anyway, he goes, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm demon-possessed. And I have nightmares. And I just, I see demons all the time. And, and I'm having problems at night. And I'm just like, great. It's like, what do you do before you go to bed? He goes, oh, I watch horror movies. They're my favorite. And I'm like are you kidding me (laughs) i said why don't you try stopping that practice and read psalms this is after he got saved by the way by when he got saved he was up in the front singing and he was shouting he goes can i pray can i pray and he just and he would pray and thank god for all that i mean it was a totally different person he's like how can i get rid of these nightmares so start reading Psalms and stop watching horror movies. <laughs> but it was crazy. And, and it was amazing, the night and day difference. Because he turned away from evil. He began to hate evil. And it no longer was near him. By the way, all of this proves our condition. We're going to go back to that fear in a, in a minute. And the importance of that statement. That's one of the biggest problems in our relationship with God, that we fear the things of man more than we do the things of God. But in verse 19, he goes on to say, now we know that that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law, or ba- that's basically we are surrounded by the law. We're inundated by the law. That's what it means when he says that it speaks to those who are in the law. You know, like when you jump in the deep end of a pool you're completely submerged and surrounded by water. And if you can't swim, you're in trouble, right? And uh, I like to do that from the time I was one to three. I used to just walk right off the end of the diving board and into the pool. My, my daughter, uh, not Kelsey, but Kaylee, she was the same way. She would, she'd see water and she'd run straight to the water. She didn't know how deep it was. She didn't care. And she went, went straight and sunk like a rock to the bottom of the pool. And you could see this. You know, most people would have a look of horror on their face when they sink to the bottom and can't get up, she was smiling. She loved it. And uh, we had trained a, you know, a guy to be a lifeguard, and the first person he got to save was my daughter. off. And he looked at me, and I'm like, well, you're the lifeguard. Go get her. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he laughed, because I had this big grin on my face. I knew she was fine. And, uh, but she was crazy. She still is crazy. But, <laughs> but she likes barbecue, so she's OK. The proof is, man is, con- is condemned. The law shows that we're surrounded by the law so that every mouth may be shut and all the world may be held accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh, notice the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And it's very simple. The law shuts everybody's excuses. There's no excuse. When, when thrown into the deep end of the law, when the law surrounds a person, they realize when you start reading scripture, there is no argument that can, you can't get away from it. It's why the use of the law, or talking about the Ten Commandments, or is useful when we talk about almost everybody. We say, oh, you, how are, you know, do you know if you're a believer? Or do you know if you're going to go to heaven? And they're like, well, yeah. And I'm like, how? Because I'm good. And I'm like, really? How good are you? Are you good compared to your neighbor? Or are you good compared to God? Well, let's compare yourself to God. Have you, you, know, have you lied? Yeah? Have you stole? Yeah? Have you committed adultery? Oh no, no, no. I was like, have you looked at somebody with lust in your heart, wishing you could? And like, well God says, then you've committed adultery in your heart. You're, you're already condemned, right? And you just go and go and go and it's all of a sudden, wow, how, you, I thought you said you were good. And the reality is we can't stand before God's standard. It shuts down everybody's excuse. The the word in the Greek means to be fenced in, hedged around, that the law hedges, it, it confines us. And this phrase, stop the mouth in the text, means to put a silence. It means to muzzle, to muzzle someone, to remove the ability to speak. That's one of the purposes of the law—to shut our mouth, to stop the excuses. The picture of this is you go to the courtroom, and it's like you know we've had lots of court cases over the last few years because nobody, else, you know, there's no Perry Mason anymore, so everybody has to watch, you know, live TV, you know, and they watch all these court dramas unfold, and we laugh because most of us are like, that's not right because we've watched Perry Mason, right? Yeah, but the picture is that of being in the courtroom of God. God is the judge. We are the defendants. And we are giving all these grand arguments. I should be led into heaven because I'm a good person because of this. I've read the live, heard the live, gone to church. I, oh, my, my mom and my grandmothers were amazing believers. Let me tell you. Let me give you all this. We're given a time to speak. But when we are given the law and we're given God gives it to us, our mouth shuts because we know that we're in our heart we're guilty as charged. Therefore, we have no defense. That is what it's like when we come face to face with God, and that's the end of verse nineteen. Is that the law makes everyone accountable? It it, it literally means here that. We are under justice or under judgment, and are liable for that judgment. We are liable for our condition. We are liable for our conduct. It condemns us. The, the actual, with the context, the the real, the literal rendering is this: is that we are liable to pay the penalty to God. That's what it means to be held accountable. In the Greek, it's. It's the liable to pay the penalty. We are liable. And that's what the law does. It establishes everyone as a sinner. Paul started this. He says, what then? Are we better? Not at all. None of us. He says, all are under sin in verse 9. Verse 19 or in 20, it says, because of the work of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of God of sin we are liable to that, the divine diagnosis the ultimate diagnosis is we have sin the law has been the perfect x-ray, the perfect MRI the perfect CAT scan it's the perfect microscope that looks at the intent of who we are our condition, it's looked at all of our conduct, it's revealed it all and it says look you have an eternal problem. The law condemns us. Jesus said to those who were relying on their own works, away from me, all you evildoers. The psalmist says no one living is righteous before you in Psalm 143, 2. It's impossible to save ourselves. What then is this purpose? What then is the purpose of the law? It is through the law that we receive the knowledge of sin, that we understand our true condition. It is the perfect diagnosis. We need it. God's law is a mirror for our lives so we can truly see who we are. That is why we must read it all the time. It shows our problems. It reveals our problems, so then that way we can do surgery on our problems. There's nothing worse than going to a doctor and walking away with no diagnosis, right? Am I wrong? I think that's—I've heard that complaint more than anybody else. It's like I I, can't—either I can't get to the doctor, or when I left the doctor, I got nothing. Why am I even going to the doctor? That was me for a long time, until I had a real problem. I was laying in bed, and I couldn't get out of bed. That was me for a while until I realized I had a, I had a thyroid and an autoimmune problem. Right? I finally found a doctor that rendered a right diagnosis and said, now here's the right diagnosis, and we know that because of this, 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 this. We've done all the x-rays. We've done all the tests. And now that we know all that, here is... The prescription here is laid out. This is you need to change your diet. You need to take these vitamins. You're deficient. You need to do these things. And if you do this, you'll have a normal life. So I don't want it. I don't like it. <laughs> right? It means I can't eat beef. <sighs> now I just take a bunch of pills before I eat beef. <laughs> but yeah, and, and it's like this. It's like, I don't want to. But that's what we do. That's what man does. I don't like God's standard. I don't like man's diagnosis. Or I'm sorry. I don't like God's diagnosis. But when we get in God's word, it reveals our, the diagnosis. It reveals our problems. And God says, and here, here's the prescription you need to fill. Go fill it. Right? Right? Verse 9 in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, is like one of the most important verses. It says, and if you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. If you use God's word and practice it and make it a habit every day, you will have peace. But that's the problem. We forget to take the pill, right? (laughs) We, 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 We don't do it. The law, by the way, did you notice there in the works of the law? The law does not forgive our sins or justify us. In fact, the law makes the sin worse, not better. It reveals our sin. It condemns our sin. It even aggravates our sin. Because God wants us to deal with our sin. It is a mirror that shows dirt on our face, but the law cannot wash it. It just shows us. Have you ever tried? Has your mirror ever washed your face? You know, maybe you rub your face on it. You know, I broke my arm once. I did a lot of things that I probably would never do again because I had to use my mouth to do it. (laughs) Because I broke my arm. But no, the the mirror cannot wash your face. We need Christ. Galatians chapter four, verse three says this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, the condition of sin in this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts So we can cry, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the reality. The law shows that we need Christ. We need Christ. We need his righteous life. Because we are not righteous. There is none righteous. No, not one. We all go our own way. We all do our own things. And every way we go, we destroy ourselves. So God sent his son to be righteousness for us. To be that payment. To stand in. To take God's full wrath on sin. He stood and he was our go-between. That was his love for us. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a problem with peace? Do you feel like you have peace in your life? Do you know that sin will destroy your peace, even if you're a believer? Not having a fear of the Lord causes problems. The the fear of the Lord causes problems in the fact that we we struggle. We struggle so much. This is a really big thing. When we do not fear God, we fear everything else. As a believer, you say, well, man, you know, I understand. This is, makes the cross, this makes what Christ did for me so much sweeter. It's just, this is really who I really am, but then God saved me. Yeah, it makes you you gotta understand your true nature to understand your salvation, to understand that you need to be saved. But if you don't have a proper fear of the Lord, you're gonna fear everything else. And when you fear everything else, there's no peace. Sin will cause you to hide like Adam and Eve. And that's not peaceful. When you're hiding. God when you're running around this world trying to cover up your sin trying to make other people believe you're good when in reality you know you're not if you confess your sin he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness that's how much God loves you that's why he died on the cross for your sins when we run to him and say Lord here I am sin and all He he uses the proper diagnosis to cleanse us and to wash us. When we have a proper fear of God, we don't fear anything else. And when we don't fear anything else, we have a better peace in life. We should worry about who can destroy the soul, not who can just mark our flesh. It's just a flesh wound. Right? Those of you that you know, Monty Python guys. (laughs) Those of you that are not, you're not missing anything. (laughs) Right? In the next passage that we're going to get to, we're going to start this new new section on justification. Paul gives us, he says, great, now that we know the problem, I'm going to give you the right prescription, the right medicine that will heal your soul. 2 Corinthians talks about this in chapter 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.